Remember the 60s and 70s? I barely do. <laughs> I uh, was born in 1966, but, you know, flower children, Woodstock, um, hippies, uh, the Jesus movement stuck in there, drugs, etc. Well, one of the uh, ideas of the 60s and 70s that uh, uh, was talked about quite a bit was the idea of peace. And... Uh, Songs uh, such as from the Beatles, Give Peace a Chance. Uh, uh, there were slogans. Remember the slogan, Make Love, Not War? That was actually coined uh, by a man named Gershon Legman at a uh, lecture in 1963 at the University of Ohio. Remember there were peace symbols. Uh, someone described it to me as an upside-down cross, but actually it's kind of like a stick man turned on its head without the head and a circle around it. That was actually created by a man named Holtom, and it was in the backdrop of the nuclear uh, disarmament or the desire to disarm nuclear uh, weapons, and he writes about that symbol when he created it. He says, I was in despair, deep despair. I drew myself the representation of an individual in despair with hands, palm, palm outstretched outwards and downwards, in the manner of Goya's peasant before the firing squad. In other, in other words, it's a painting of this guy that's about ready to be fired upon, and he's just saying, no, no, stop, uh, have mercy. And so that's where the inspiration for the peace symbol came. Um, the idea of peace politically was certainly a big idea in the 60s and 70s, uh, basically to stop war between nations. Uh, I think in a sense morally as well, uh, there was a sense that they... Uh, the idea is we're trying to re reject the tyranny, I say that almost kind of tongue-in-cheek, tyranny of objective moral law, in other words, anarchy uh, when it comes to moral values, do as you please, do as you want. Uh, and, there was, uh, and what was what interesting to me is what this generation wanted is what Jesus is going to and has delivered in spades to us. He is going to deliver in the millennial reign peace as far as the kingdom is concerned when he reigns uh, from Jerusalem, but he has already delivered peace morally, and instead of rejecting the standard, he satisfied the standard. And that's the idea we want to look at today, is the, the peace that God has brought to us in the spiritual realm. So turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 7, uh, verses 36 through 50. Luke chapter 7, 36 through 50. This is the story. Uh, Jesus is invited to a, ph a Pharisee's house, and uh, an unexpected visitor shows up. Verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now this Pharisee's name, as we find out later in the text, is Simon. And uh, for whatever reason, there's a sense that Simon is wanting to question Jesus a little bit wants to find out a little bit more about this man named Jesus. Verse 37, And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Now, a few thoughts about this sinful woman. That's how Luke describes this woman, as simply a sinful woman. 
Now, tradition has attempted to try to tie in this sinful woman here in Luke chapter 7 along with uh, to the Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene found in other places in Scripture. Uh, I, it, best I could find, it was initially proposed back by Pope Gregory I, and he wrote this, She whom Luke calls the sinful woman, whom John calls Mary of Bethany, we believe to be Mary from whom the seven devils were ejected according to Mark. There's a sense, there's Pope, the Pope is trying to tie these three people to, together uh, across the narrative. Um, remember, too, of the Da Vinci Code, what was one of the ideas that the Da Vinci Code threw out that Mary Magdalene was married to Jesus? Um, I would suggest to you, uh, stating that that's hogwash, <laughs> after that, stating that these are three separate people. This sinful woman that we see in Luke chapter 7 is not the same person as the Mary of Bethany that we see interacting with Jesus in the other Gospels, nor is it Mary Magdalene. It's just simply an unnamed woman. And I would suggest that for several reasons, one of which the text is dealing with the time in which Jesus was in the the area of Galilee. Mary of Bethany, Bethany is in the region of Judea, further south um, in in uh, in that part of the world. Uh, further, now the, the women that came, this, the Mary of Bethany and the sinful woman that did come to Jesus at different times, they both were certainly immoral. But another distinction is that we're going to see in this text, this sinful woman poured the perfume and anointed the feet of Jesus. In the other Gospels, the woman, the Mary of Bethany, is pouring oil on the head, the perfume on the head of Jesus. Like they're two, they're separate events. So this event that we're looking at here in Luke chapter 7 stands on its own. There's no parallel account in any of the other Gospels. One other note about this alabaster vial of perfume. An alabaster was a uh, material that was easily carved and easily polished, uh, reserved for typically uh, expensive items, in this case perfume. Verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. And so what we see here is we see this woman, this uninvited guest, as it were, showing acts of kindness to Jesus that even the guest, Simon, did not show. And we'll see that later in the text. Simon didn't greet Jesus with a kiss. He didn't provide water for his feet to be washed and cleansed. But this woman did. The tears fell on the feet of Jesus. She took her hair. She wiped them. She uh, obviously was in a state of repentance. I don't know how else you can explain the the tears, but there were were tears. There was real sense of, of, of looking for forgiveness, seeking for forgiveness, This was an immoral woman, most would say probably a prostitute. Um, And here she is at the feet of Jesus. One interesting note about this this vial uh, of alabaster vial of perfume. When we think about perfume, we we think of today's terms, you know, either a little squirt thing, of course, cologne for guys, right? Uh, You squirt on you, uh, or maybe something that you would, that would you open up and dab on you. Uh, most likely, uh, 
that was not quite the case of the, the way perfume, perfume was used with, when it came to alabaster, perfume and alabaster vials. Alabaster was also a very porous material, and typically it was more, the scent would come out of the bottle. So the fact that she would actually not just that she would actually take this uh, perfume and put it on the feet of Jesus, I think, is even more remarkable in the sense that that's not what it was designed for. It was just designed to let out a slow. Uh, aroma, but here she rips, either breaks the bottle or opens the bottle and, and puts it on the feet of Jesus, a showing of just tremendous respect, a tremendous amount of um, really an act of worship, I think, to, to the, her Savior. Verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Now here I think we see the literary genius of Luke is because what do we, that this Pharisee said to himself, I think it's a way of explaining this was the thought of the Pharisee, not necessarily the spoken word. But what is it that a prophet can do. One of the things a prophet can do is know things that normally you can't know by human uh, understanding. Things that a uh, prophet knows things that are only revealed to them by God. So here we have Simon, who is even skeptical about Jesus being a prophet, but then listen to Jesus's the way Luke records the next uh, next phrase here. And Jesus answered him. And Jesus answered him. In other words, Jesus knew what Simon was thinking. He, he certainly was a prophet. He was, Jesus was certainly more than a prophet. And uh, so Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 denarii. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her, to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. There were some things, so Jesus, as he's instructing uh, Simon into what's happened in his, what is what is happening in his house tells this parable of these two debtors. Now, one thing that's common about the, in this parable about these two debtors is, first of all, they owed they owed a substantial amount of money. A denarii a denarius was about one day's wages, so fifty days wages and five hundred days wages. Calculate that <laughs> as you will for yourself. That's a lot of money. That's a substantial amount of money in either case. Both of the debtors owed. Neither of them could pay. The, due had, the, the debt had come due. The lender was ready for his money. They could not pay it. And they were both forgiven. Both of the debtors 
were forgiven. But there was a distinction, and that distinction is one had a greater debt. And the one that had a greater debt, Jesus is describing here, is that she, this debtor would have a greater love for the lender who forgave this debt. There are degrees of love. It's not enough just to say, I love Jesus. There's a question uh, of, of how much is that love? Or if we say, I love my spouse. Well, there's little love. There's lots of love. There's all kinds of things in between. Love is, a, uh, is, is, is degrees. There's degrees of love. Here's Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. Love is not like a piece of cast iron, fixed and set, but it grows and has its time of budding and flowering and leaf shedding. It's like a fire. At one time it may burn low, and at another it may be blown up in a very venomous heat. Love rises and falls. I speak not of God's love to us, but of our love to God. It has its ups and its downs, its summers and its winters, its flood tides, tides and its ebbs. And if we find a change in love in the same heart, we are not at all to f- astonished that it should differ in other, should differ in different hearts. To say that we love Jesus does not settle it. We must ask ourselves, how much do we love Jesus? Do we love Jesus just enough to be saved? Or does the peace that we find from our moral debt being paid fan the fame of flame of our love for Jesus Christ? Verse 49. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And I think at this, el- this moment in this room where Simon is just trying to decide if this was a prophet or not, and all of a sudden Jesus is now forgiving sin, what is clear, I think, to the Jewish mind is there's only one that can forgive sins, and that is God. And I think this is nothing less, obviously, than a claim of Jesus and a demonstration of Jesus that He is God. Certainly not the first time in His ministry that He did this, but here we see it again, that Jesus is the one that forgives sins. And then verse 50. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Your faith has saved you, go in peace. Holy, holy, holy is our God. The debt of our sin is magnified by the pure, sinless nature of God. For God is absolutely and infinitely good. He is without blemish, and his character demands perfection. It is here that we find the conflict, the war. God has instilled within us a desire to know and to love Him. So we are drawn to this good, to God. But there is a roadblock. The barrier is the sin within us. And at this realization, we're really faced with two choices. We can either look to ourselves for a path to God, a peace treaty as it were. That's what many of the cults and many of the world religions do. Try to reach up to God, try to make that Uh, way, but there will never be peace along this road. We can never be good enough. We cannot be perfect. The only way to peace with God is through God. As 1 John chapter 2 says, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. The idea of propitiation there is kind of the appeasement, the appeasement to God. 
There's a saying, you know, as you drive around and you see church signs, uh, there's all kinds of little catchy signs, and most of them don't do a whole lot for me. But one of them that has always caught my attention is, no Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. Okay? And, And when I verbally say that, you may not, if you haven't seen that, you may not catch it, but the first no is N-O, no Jesus, no peace. You don't have Jesus, you don't have peace. But the second no is K-N-O-W, no Jesus, no peace. I think that's the point of this, this story, this account. So what? What does that mean for us? And I would say there's at least three things um, as how we, of how we can apply this text to ourselves in the 21st century. First of all, let us continue to count the debt of our sin. Let us continue to count the debt of our sin. It's, sin is kind of like buying a fancy house. A fancy house you can't really afford. You know, as you, as you buy the fancy house that you can't afford, it's pretty good for a while until the mortgage comes due. And then all of a sudden your debt becomes very real. Um, I think that's the way that sin is. Sometimes it may be fun for a season, but there is a real debt that is there. And so I think as believers, certainly in an ultimate way, our sin is forgiven, but yet we continue to sin. And I think it is an important part of a spiritual discipline to, to, to regularly count the debt of our own personal sin. When was the last time... Um, that we, we took, the, took moments, minutes, or more to reflect on the debt of our sin. What sins have we um, done uh, that not only need to be repented of, but we need to be reminded of that that debt is real and it's only paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. I think we need to take a portion of our prayer time and, uh, and, and, and be still and to listen and to, re, and to let the Holy Spirit speak to our conscience and to recount the debt that we are causing by our sin. Peace, the second point. I think peace frees us to love. Our love can grow because we have, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you, we, if you have done, at least metaphorically, like this woman did in this narrative where you have placed your, own, your hope for salvation, your hope for repentance, your hope that the debt would be paid, if you've laid that at the feet of Jesus Christ, then you have peace. We have real moral peace within ourselves because of what Christ has done. And because of that, it frees us, I think, to really love. Um, I think there is some metaphorical truth in the phrase, make love, not war. <laughs> make love, not war. A Christian's war is over, at least uh, from an ultimate sense. Victory is ours. Kind of like a nation that is uh, not at war. There's really no distractions. They can focus on the, inten- uh, the, uh, uh, whatever the uh, actions of the state may be. That's the case with us as followers of Jesus Christ. We do not need to worry about ultimate peace with God because that is done. It's satisfied. And it can, then we can allow ourselves to, to love one another. Let our love grow. Practice it among other people. Love one another. Again, quoting Spurgeon, he says this, 
If you want to increase your love to Jesus, use it. Do not merely talk about it, but actually serve Him under its sweet constraint. It is a very poor Christianity that consists in sitting still and dreaming and never attempting any practical service for Jesus our Lord. He that thinks that he will quietly enjoy religion all alone will soon find that he has very little of it to enjoy. For doubts and fears will breed in swarms in a stagnant atmosphere. Peace frees us to love. And third, the peace that is given by God is secure and it's stable. It's secure and it's stable. When Jesus said to the woman, go in peace, he was not telling her simply to feel peaceful. The feelings of peace come and go in our life. The different stages, the different things that happen to us, sometimes we feel peaceful, sometimes we don't feel peaceful because of the, uh, the events in our life. But when it comes to the ultimate reality of our relationship with God, we can have stability of peace because the peace comes from God Himself. I can't promise you peace in your finances, your health, your job, gas prices, marriages, or in your hopes and your dreams. Term, turmoil and conflict may come. In fact, it will come. But in the area that matters most, in that which has everlasting implications, peace is very real. Because peace between you and God is not dependent on you. The peace comes from God alone, and He is faithful and true. Let peace bring you thoughtful reflection. Let peace increase your love. And let peace bring you security and stability. Here in a few minutes, we're going to uh, take communion, one of the sacraments of the church. And uh, just like our national security, sometimes peace in countries, it comes at a great price. And that's true for us as well spiritually. There was a great price that was paid uh, for us to have peace with God. As one of the uh, lines in a, in, in, a, in a hymn says, This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we reflect on this account that happened while you were on this earth. Father, you went to the home of a Pharisee. And the Pharisee got some instruction that he was not expecting. And Father, this great sinful woman came into the presence of Christ, came into your son's presence, and she found peace. She found peace with God. And Father, I uh, pray that each of us, as, as we have, for those of us who have accepted Christ as Savior, who um, who know you, Father, we pray that this peace that uh, comes only from you, Father, that we might remember how real and stable and secure that peace is. It can never go. It can never ebb. It can never flow. Father, our feelings might. Our circumstances certainly do. But, Father, the reality of our relationship with you is secure, and we have peace in that. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen.